welcome to this very special coronavirus COVID-19 edition of Two Keto Dudes. It's not really a Two Keto Dudes as you know him, but uh, I thought uh, I would talk to my friend Richard Morris and my friend Dave Feldman because they have both been very helpful online in disseminating information. So good to talk to you guys. And I'm, I'm actually in the States right now in Denver uh, on the way back to Australia after the Low Carb Denver conference, and both Carl and Dave are self-isolating, and I'm yep. going back home to 14 days of self-isolation, so oh, that's wonderful. it's playing on our mind. I've got tons of questions, but Dave, I think you wanted to kick it off with uh, some bad news first and then end up with some good news. Is that what you want to do? So yeah, I've been working through the macro numbers to some degree, uh, certainly scraping a lot of the data, and... I think I've kind of gotten a sense of at least where my analysis lies. One of the things that's been fascinating to me is looking at the data when you exclude China. Hmm. So there are a number of different dashboards that have popped up around the coronavirus, and they all aggregate from a lot of these larger officially reported data sets around the world. For example, ours as uh, the CDC and a few other resources and so forth. Now, everybody knows the... Uh, originating point, it, well, I shouldn't say everybody knows, but it's assumed right now that the originating point is China. China holds, at least at the point that I started this research, around two-thirds of the total cases because I started when there was around, I want to say, 120,000 cases total, mm. and they had around 80,000 of them. Currently less than half. Right. That's changed since mm. I started this. And so one of the things that I don't want to get into too much because I kind of want to keep this apolitical is that a lot of things about China's data concern me. Uh, for example, their data seemed somewhat muted compared to what I was hearing from now doctors I know in that area, particularly after going on this um, tour of sorts and doing a lot of filming. Now I have kind of some contacts and they've They've said that they were a little unsure about how accurate the data was. And when the World Health Organization went and visited China, then all of a sudden there was a lot of corrections, if you will. Yeah. And the data like spiked up substantially on some reclassifications. A very wise Aussie once told me, consider the source. <laughs> and consider the source, right. And since the World <laughs> Health Organization has left, there seems to be this, you know, very, I mean, I hope it's true, but there seems to be this sudden like, you know, tapering off to where there's now nearly no cases um, yeah. that are coming out, including all of mainland China, Right. which I'm just going to say I just don't find very compelling. So let's set that aside for a moment. What I then decided to do was just look at all the data uh, for all the countries around the world, excluding China, to see what it looks like. Where are you getting your data? So you can go to World Ometers is one of my favorites. They tend to update the most and fastest. But there are really other places as well. For example, the Johns Hopkins has uh, got favorite. a dashboard. Yeah, everybody, everybody loves that one because it's very visual. Uh, and It also they, scrapes uh, health databases from around the world. So it's actually doing hmm. that in real time, which some of these others go from the Johns Hopkins data. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the first source, I believe. Right. Now, here's the thing. You take that data and you do what I did where I scraped all of the all cases data and then I subtracted the China cases data mm -hmm. so that I basically had all cases excluding China. And particularly in the last 
really month, month and a half, you get a very strong exponential relationship. Now, for people who don't know what an exponential relationship between numbers are, let me kind of give just a very layperson summary. And and before I do, let me emphasize, I'm not a statistician or epidemiologist or anything, but it's pretty basic. I mean, basically, you look at how much a number changes over a span of time in increments. So for example, if I were to look at uh, March 1st of this, you know, just literally 15 days ago, there were 8,559 cases that exclude China. And this is worldwide? This is worldwide. And the day after, there were 10,292 cases. So what I do is I look at the difference between the two. And I find that 10,292 is about 1.2 times the uh, 1.2 times 8,559. So it's increased about 20%. In a day. In a day. Then I look to March 3rd which is now 12,746, that's about 1.24 times right. the day before. And then the day after that, I look at, I see 14,905, that's about 1.17 times the row before that. And to simplify it, what's going to happen is when I look back 15 days, we're going to get an average rate of change of 1.19, the average. In other words, they all seem to be at about 1.2 day after day. Yes. That's an exponential relationship. That means that each day compounds on to the next day so that you see a curve. You see a, a slope going upward if you were going from left to right. Mm -hmm. And what that means, it, it's actually very hard for the human mind to comprehend what this really means uh, because we're used to linear relationships. We're not used to log relationships. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's very difficult for us to comprehend. But I naturally... Uh, after seeing that this relationship was stable and seeing that, sure enough, on March 1st, we had 8,559 cases. As of yesterday, we had 88,717 cases. Th that's all the cases excluding China. Right. If we see that this average rate of change is pretty stable at 1.19, which I'm, I'm going to say that it looks that way right now. And before I say these next numbers, let me emphasize, there are going to be things that can change this but it's worth at least taking a look at this, then what that means is today, March 16th, if this rate of change continues, we will cross 100,000 cases. 105,573 is the estimate. We'll land somewhere around there. And in and odds are for people who are listening to this podcast, this has already happened by now. But further, we will probably cross 200,000 on March 20th. Yep. And then about five days later, we will hit half a million, 505,212 on March 25th. And by March 29th, by the end of this month, if this rate of change continues as it does, we will have hit a million total cases. And that's just how exponential relationships work. And it makes sense when you think about how viruses work. Now, that's the bad news. Let me layer on some good news real quick. Before you do that, I just want to make a comment that this kind of reporting is a little bit problematic because we don't know for sure if this represents the actual number of cases because it all has to do with tests availability Correct. and test willingness. And uh, those who get tested generally are usually the ones that have the outward symptoms. So I would say, I would hazard a guess 
that these numbers are conservative. Well, I, I, I just want to make a point here that uh, there are some countries that are doing surveillance testing, and surveillance testing is when you test a whole bunch of people. So you get test, randomly test people in the community, and you use that, you use statistical inference to infer, look, if I go out and test 100 random people in the community, and 20 of them have the virus, and I have a population of 100 million, then I can project that my my, my total infection count is 20 million. But there's another factor involved with how viruses propagate, and that is that humans make antibodies. And so the larger the numbers get, the more the more the greater our herd immunity is. So the lower the reproduction rate of the virus is. So you can't project a, a, a static reproduction rate of one point of twenty percent of one point two that stays the same, because as more people get infected and 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 recover, they then they then become social distancing between people on either side of them because that because they're immune. And and uh, they produce antibodies. So you know that it it's uh, viruses don't travel. Di- the 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 growth doesn't travel directly in a in a log relationship, uh, except at, at the beginning when there's a, a naive community with no immunity, and that's that's what we started out with. Which is why China may. So there's a couple of factors about China. First of all, they had the most uh, that they started before anybody else's. There's maybe a different strain than others. They also changed their counting mechanism on February thirteenth. So the other factor is that these uh, they've used these extreme isolation. They they they'll take one member of a family who's shedding the the virus. They'll take them out of the family and put them in an isolation camp, which is like the the opposite of a concentration camp. Um, to to really be uh, strict about this, this is something that that other societies won't do. But we can actually look at South Korea who have done something similar. They have certainly done the surveillance testing, um, but they've also d- worked really hard on, on contact tracing and isolation techniques. They've actually, they've not just flattened their curve, they've, they've dropped their curve. Yes, I've spoken a lot about South Korea. I, I think yeah. that they're a model we should all be looking to right now. Richard, can I actually unpack a little bit? Because you, I, yes. believe me, I want to talk about herd immunity too, but I know a lot of people are getting confused. They're not quite sure what we're talking about with uh, herd immunity. A lot of times it gets mentioned online. Okay. But I think you, you kind of set it up right, which is you almost can treat somebody who has an immunity to a, a virus as like not there. They don't yes. count anymore as They're a empty means space for social right. distancing purposes. Yeah. Right, because at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're fighting an invisible enemy. But unlike most enemies, we are the battleground. Right. And they have a limited pass to stay with us. So uh, perhaps we should kind of get into the science. I'm going to give the very, very layperson version, mm-hmm. which is viruses, the way viruses work is once they find a host, they turn the cells of that host because we're made of the building blocks of life, which are cells. They actually aren't. They, they, they're kind of not really alive in a sense. They are genetic information and that genetic information kind of hacks our cells to turn them into factories to make copies of the virus. They're like Borg drones. Yes. In a, in a sense. And what's interesting about it is most people will mount a healthy uh, defense, an immune response to the virus to try to kick it out. And most of those people will have an adequate enough, well, depending on the severity of the virus, 
But most people generally will be able to mount enough of an immune response that not only will they kick it out, but there's something known as the adaptive immune system, which means that they'll remember, they will remember that virus and make sure that if it's coming back again, that they will be able to mount an even better defense the second time around. That's right. That's the layperson's version. So what we're doing is we're both playing a game of numbers with each other. Since the virus can't hang with us forever, in most cases, it's going to try to jump onto other hosts, which because it's invisible, we don't realize we're allowing to happen, particularly if there's a period of time when we first get the virus where it can replicate and actually come off of us either via a viral shedding or through us coughing or sneezing and getting particulate matter in the air, all of these invisible means by which for it to get out and find other hosts before we start to show symptoms and before those symptoms lead for us to even isolate ourselves. That's how this thing can move as fast as it does. The one catch is, of course, different, uh, different viruses can have different levels of infectiousness. Everybody knows now this is a highly infectious. I mean, relative to a lot of other viruses, it's really fast acting. Yeah. And what, as you say, one of the reasons is because it, it, you get infected on day zero and you are infecting other people for three days before you start to develop symptoms. And so you don't know, as you say, you don't, it's invisible. You don't know what, um, that, that you're, that you're now spreading the virus through your community. Do you guys, Get, uh, do you have any information about if it's only spread through um, coughing, sneezing, and or you know shaking hands and touching your mouth and nose and stuff? Like it, it, it's pretty stealthy, isn't it? I mean, it's you can't just say, "Oh, nobody sneezed in my face in the last week, so I'm okay," right? Yeah, you can't you can't know because it it'll stay on surfaces, which is surfaces that somebody touches, and then three days later somebody else touches, and and the virus can be transmitted. Now, one thing about uh, coronaviruses in particular, they don't like desiccation, so they don't like drying out. So you know, in outdoor uh, surfaces in summer, you probably the viruses won't live there very long, but in moist surfaces indoors in in the winter time, they're probably going to last longer. So. That's consideration. I also wanted to ask you guys while I have your while we're talking about this about jacuzzis and hot tubs. Yes or no? <laughs> Don't do. Don't that. do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Why would you want to? Why would you want to sit in human soup? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I, I just you know there are probably people out there that think, oh well, you know the chlorine it's probably killing anything, uh, and I'm okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just, <laughs> just in, just in general. Just to, if there's any piece of advice, if you're going to stop the podcast right now and go on with your day, if there's anything to take away, stay away from communal areas. It try, it, if you can work from home, work from home. If you can, uh, any form of entertainment that you used to go out for, cut that off because hmm. you, again, it, it's an invisible enemy. And the degree with which it is acting on us, for that matter, the degree with which it can last on certain surfaces, all of that stuff's getting studied right now. Uh, but that said, we don't know enough to know what is safe. But one thing we can feel pretty confident in is that if it's a communal area, it's probably not safe. You probably right. just don't want to take the chances. So the way this is probably going to play out, I, I don't want people to be up, uh, panicking about this or anxious about this because you know we've dealt with viruses um, throughout our in, in, in the, the existence of our species, and this is a bad virus in that well for, for multiple reasons. It's actually not a very clever virus. A, a, a good parasite doesn't kill the host, and this is a bad parasite 
because it because it it so so it, they, they, we will build up immunity and for for, the, for those people who cannot become immune in time the host will be killed and so the virus won't you know, won't won't propagate so you know that that so so on an evolutionary scale of things this is a short little blip in our in our the history of our species and we will do fine that the the odds are that 80% of people will be infected over the next year the odds are that if you're young if you're under 50 there's a very low chance of complications however i do know of one uh, one woman a 38 38 year old fit uh, woman who um, who came down it was basically in currently in the ICU uh, on a ventilator because um, the the virus mounted a uh, an attack on her and her immune system didn't it put up too big a defense and essentially basically shut down um, uh, her ability to get oxygen into her lungs so she needs to needs a machine to breathe for her so uh, I guess one thing I would say is that as I say eighty percent of us will get it and uh, of that 80%, 80% will have mild or no symptoms. And so that's good. From uh, the remaining 20%, roughly 12% will have severe symptoms. So it'll kick your ass. But, you know, who hasn't had a flu recently that's kicked their ass? And then of that, uh, of, the, of the total uh, people who, a number of people who get it, 5% will have really severe problems, will will need ICU, intensive care. They'll, they may well need uh, support breathing. And then roughly 1% uh, will have a fatal infection that they cannot survive from. When you hear people talking about flattening the curve, they're trying to suggest that we try our best to save the uh, 12% who have uh, severe symptoms and the 5% who need intensive care to prevent them from being part of the fatalities. And really that is an issue of making sure that we have ventilators available, we have um, uh, ICU nurses to intubate people, we have, you know, we have resources and there's a limit to how many, uh, how many resources any country on the planet can, can offer. Um, I mean, we're talking about, it, let's, I've got some numbers here, let me, let me show, let's say the, the population of the USA is roughly 320 million, and 80% will become infected, so that's 256 million people will get infected with the coronavirus. 12% of that is 30 million people. So we're talking about 30 million people with serious disease. They can probably go into the emergency room if they have serious issues. But of that, 12 million people will need ICU, intensive care. That's the 5% of the total number. And there's no way there's 12 million ventilators exist in existence. No. So the question about flattening the curve is, if we're going to have 12 million people need it, needing uh, intensive care, do we want them all to happen in March or do we want them to happen slowly over time? So the, the question now becomes, how do we slow the rate of this disease that is inevitable? It is, we, we know these numbers are, 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 are looking like they're pretty accurate. So how do we slow that over time so that we can pace ourselves? And that's really what flattening the curve is all about. And we're talking about instead of having all of the cases happen in a month, ha have them happen over a year, by which stage hopefully we've got a, a vaccine we've produced and we've got uh, pharmaceuticals that can help uh, treat you know, the secondary infections and all these other things. And we can hopefully mitigate the fatality rate at that point. But, you know, if we have 12 million people all show up at the ICU needing a ventilator, then we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have to decide who's, who lives and who dies based on what our chances of healing them is, which is a horrible situation for a medical system to be in. 
I'm normally in the more jovial, optimistic role, but I have to say, Richard, you're giving a much, it's funny, you, you, you deliver that in a very <laughs> positive way. I, w- I will say I do really want to manage expectations. And, and so I, I hate to uh, add more to this, but I, but I do really think people should prepare for the reality that past the point at which we can care in intensive care. Uh, it is true. We're going to be facing what we already see today in Italy. Triage. Where, yeah, where they, they, it's, it's like wartime doctoring where yeah. they are having to make, um, you know, very difficult decisions as to which patients they're, they're going to treat and which they don't, which by the way is enormous emotional consequences, understandably to our medical professionals. Um, uh, it, yeah, the numbers you're talking about there, it, it's, it's the reality. If, if we're moving our way into that direction, and if there's nothing that changes that, which will get me to my good news here in a moment, then you're 100% right. There's, there's going to be enormous consequences we can't imagine. And right now, we're only just talking on the healthcare capacity side. We haven't even talked yet about, say, the economic ramifications or supply side. I think that's um, got to be a minor consideration. I mean, you, do, you don't think about economic considerations when you go to war. And this is a state, this is a situation that I mean, no nation goes to war like America. And this is this kind of situation where you need to have, get on a war footing. And then economic considerations are, are you, you can look after that after the war's over. I'll just say that I don't, I, I think that this will substantially affect everybody to an extent. And that's not my way of saying, so panic now. That's, no. that's more of a, yeah, just like with war, there's enormous amounts of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty as to when lots of things get back online. There's shortages and rationing. All of these things are just a part of a larger disruption yeah. uh, that comes with societies, which, which frankly, a lot of us have never really experienced to this. I think that this will be much more comparable to say, um, you know, I, I want to be careful in the way that I choose this wording, but it'll be much more comparable to what a world war would be yes. than a theater of war where you know it's it's something that we've like say desert storm or right. for that for that matter you know, my, the, no this 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 is this is a situation I mean fog of war is a term of art um, and and I think it's a it's a it's an accurate one when we're talking about what we know and what we don't know and what we know we don't know and what we don't know we know you know <laughs> um, so 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 really I mean one of the things that we do know is that seventy eight thousand humans on the planet are immune and now have immunity are now resistant to this particular virus and most likely will never be infected again. And these are the people that have had mild symptoms and whose immune systems have created antibodies and they've recovered? And also people who've had serious symptoms and have recovered. This is 78,078 people total recovered, of which 55,000 of them are in Hubei, China. So this is the point I was trying to make about herd immunity is that these people now become circuit breakers between a carrier and a, and, a, and a naive patient who could be infected. So, so are you saying that if if you've had it, if you've had the the coronavirus that causes COVID nineteen, and you've come out the other side of it, you can't get it again? So there is a couple of cases uh, that was that that appeared to be reinfection cases, but it seems to be... One, one of the problems is that there's two ways of testing, if, or three ways of testing if somebody has uh, COVID-19. You can look at their lungs and see if, they, if their lungs look 
basically opaque. And that that will tell you that there is a, a severe viral um, lung infection happening and you can assume that it's COVID-19. The other way of testing is to do a test for the antigen. So what you're doing is you're you're basically taking some of their blood and you have a test that will trigger when the virus is in the blood. And then you and that the virus is the antigen, and then that will tell you if they're infected and if they're shedding virus. But the other way of testing it is an antibody test, and that tells you if the person is making antibodies to the particular antigen. And that test we don't currently use. I mean, there I believe there is one under development, but it's a, it's a much more complicated thing because you're trying to now test does this human human's um, immune system provide a response against this particular antigen. Um, I suspect, and other people have also uh, said that it's quite likely that the people who we thought had been reinfected just hadn't really gotten rid of it yet. And actually, we still, uh, both Richard and I watch a great doctor online who does almost daily briefings now and sometimes John, John Campbell, Campbell yeah, right? Day. Yeah. yeah, he's fantastic. He is fantastic. And he had mentioned that, and everything that I've seen kind of suggests that I think it's a little too early to say that we can be sure you can't get reinfected. And as is typical with many uh, viruses that we do ultimately build a uh, immunity to, oftentimes it also depends on the state of your immune system in the first place. So for example, you may have had a virus that you kicked out before, and then some years later, you're in a much more compromised state. And now some this happens, for example, with AIDS. Uh, it's, a great, it's a lot of things that couldn't get you before now can get you. So I think it should also go without saying to try to stay as healthy as you can through this. You know, it's beyond just the just beyond just the physical health. By the way, try to be mentally healthy. Try to be emotionally healthy. There's plenty of good science behind that having direct uh, effects on your immune response. How optimistic you can remain has a lot to do with your ability to fight, sure. actually, yeah, actually fight things within your body. Mm. Uh, so that's, I really do want to emphasize, that's another reason to kind of keep hope alive. And I wanted to get to my good news. So look, yeah, I, please you, do. you look at all prior pandemics, you look at all, um, really just about every large scale crisis, and you find that really smart minds get together and they're mostly inhibited by, you know, typical means of communication. So somebody who's really a genius and has a great clue that's over in France just didn't know about the other guy who uh, is over in Brazil. They didn't know about the uh, the awesome scientist who she was working on some fantastic things over in, you know, Skinoki, Illinois, whatever. We've never had this kind of uh, the same thing that kind of allowed the spread of this virus, which was globalization. I mean, yeah. that's what's kind of spiked it to go as fast as it has is also, I think, going to be our weapon against it. I think we're never, we've never had at any point in time a challenge like this for which so many intelligent, amazing minds can come together. I mean, mm. I, I, I myself am not putting myself in that class or anything, but I will say this, I, me personally, in the last like nine days, I haven't read a single thing on lipids or lipoproteins. <laughs> uh, well, you know, but, funny you should say that, Dave. It, I, there are a lot of pharmacologists and uh, and and structural uh, biochemists who have made wonderful careers building the next cholesterol-inhibiting molecule who are now 
reconsidering and being dragooned into um into scaling up a vaccine and scaling up right. the treatment. So so you're not the only one who's whose mind's off lipids right now. The flip side of that, Dave, is that there are also a lot of freaking idiots <laughs> that are getting together and putting out the biggest pile of crap I've ever seen in my life. Sure, sure. But here's the thing. I'm I'm very much a fan of the free market of ideas. I I sure. I definitely think at the end of the day the strong data moves forward and unfortunately for better or for worse in a crisis like this the data presents itself rapidly. I mean, how how can we actually have a a countrywide example like say South Korea were it mm. not for how fast this virus moves? And how exciting is it that I I've never even visited South Korea. And now you want to, right? Yeah, now I have all this access to data. I I can read about all these things they're doing. That those stories, I mean, as as a laboratory in and of itself, those stories are permeating out to all of these other policymakers. I think that they're going to have an influence. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not something where. It, and I should I should sorry I should back up a sec. I should emphasize something. South Korea is a special exception in a few different ways that are going to be very difficult for us to ramp up to with the U.S. Mm. For example, they already had a culture that was uh, a little more careful about um, viral contact in the first place. Mm. They also tend to have a tighter partnership between the populace and the government. So they're, they're very, uh, they're very active. They're, they're, they don't have quite the same. I guess you could say individualist independent streak that you see in the US where, for example, we still have people packing bars in spite of all of these closures because that are for of. the purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of people are treating this as a Screw national you guys holiday. Up the bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, my point being is that they it's it's powerful, I think, for there to be an example that is out there and for which the uh the data keeps floating up to the top to the best minds that hopefully will help make these decisions for us to get us out of this mess. So I put a lot of my stock in the innovation of our species. I think that I think that we will surprise ourselves with a lot of the coming acts of scientific um, uh, imagination and pragmatic, uh, pragmatism that will bring us to the next step. There's a great story that came out of South Korea. Richard, maybe you could talk about that patient 31 story. Yeah, the patient 31 story is a fascinating story. We'll we'll put a, a link in the in the comments, but the um essentially the first like five patients that were confirmed to have um uh had uh the Wuhan virus or you know, subsequently came to be known as uh SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um the first five came from Wuhan and they traced the contacts of those people to 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 determine exactly that they hadn't infected other people but this like the sixth person was an it was a reinfection of a of somebody locally and then uh you know they had two more um uh people coming in from wuhan with the with the virus and then they had four more local infections and one of those was married to and they looked at like for that for that one who was married to another person they infected, they basically went through 422 contacts for that person to see um, and tested all of those contacts to see if they were if they were infected. And so this is sort of, you know, every time they found a, a person who was infected, they'd find out everybody who they'd been associated with in the past 14 days and tested them as well. So this is a, this is a kind of going to war that America needs to do. Yeah. That... Uh, it's a shame to say that South Korea 
uh, that that America can't do something that South Korea can do. But you know, I remain uh, skeptical. But we, we shall see. But the thirty first patient seen to have the virus in um, in South Korea uh, ended up infecting like. Over a thousand people, I think, uh, eleven hundred and sixty uh, people, and the way that this story happened was, um, she'd had a car accident. She was hospitalised, left hospital, and then went to a, attend a church. And after the church, she developed a fever, and this is like two days after the accident. So sometime around the car accident. She had somehow got infected. The fever develops two days later, so we can roughly work out her initial infection was at that point uh, at the during the car accident. She just attended church prior to exhibiting symptoms, and she had now infected a whole bunch of people in the church. A couple of days later, she went to a buffet, um, and she she you know she was exhibiting regular flu symptoms, so it's not something you'd be worried too much about. Um, and then she went to church again, and and other people around her were were talking about the, the uh, about this um, uh, virus that they got. She finally went to a public clinic uh, via a taxi, and then uh, and then she was announced as as, as case number thirty one. But it turns out when you look at the number of people that she infected, um, you know it was it was a significant number of people just by going to church and not knowing that she had the virus. So that that right. that shows you how insidious it is. It shows you how it, it creeps in amongst the community. It also shows you the level that South Korea went to to do the contact tracing to see, okay, every person, we want to test as many people as we can who we know have been in contact with an infected person. We also want to test random people in the community. And the nice thing about this is that South Korea knows more about how many are infected than anybody else. Now, I don't know why the testing wasn't done in America. I can speak for Australia, and we're just as bad. Um, I don't know why we're not doing surveillance testing. Uh, But one of the useful things we can do is we can extrapolate from the South Korean data. So let me get this uh, spreadsheet up. Currently, uh, South Korea has roughly 8,236 people that they know are infected. And that's from testing over 200,000 people. And they're testing you know, 10,000 people a day. Of those 8,236, 75, in 75 cases, it was fatal. So there, this is the case fatality rate for them. That's how many of the total number of cases, how many were fatal. Their case fatality rate is 0.91%. It's going up a little bit because of the time course of these these things. So we know that, that roughly if you were to test, do really rigorous testing through your community, that, uh, that your case fatality rate is roughly 0.91%. Okay. In the USA, currently, there, are, there, there have been 69 fatalities, so all, very close to the Korean number of fatalities, um, but the number of people tested is 38-13. So it's, it's less than half of the number, number of people have, who've been tested. Let's say for the sake of argument that number is wrong, <laughs> okay? And <laughs> or it could also be due to the fact that you don't get tested in the United States unless you're, like, you know, coughing up a lung. It's wrong. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the number of total people infected. It's, Look, speaking it's, it's, speaking as an American, I am embarrassed. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm embarrassed at how long it's taken us to get serious with it. And and for what it's worth, I kind of own this a little bit with myself. When I started this trip, 
uh, which started in January. And we were traveling around. I saw coronavirus coming up. I was doing the same thing most people you see online right now are doing, which is I compared it to the flu. And I was like, come on, man. Why is there so much attention being paid to this thing? Yeah. And so I think to some degree, a lot of people, and this includes myself originally, thought, look, this is just one other strain. It doesn't seem to really kill a lot of people relative to the flu. And, you know, we're probably going to be immune to it in no time anyway. Whatever. Right. And Dave totally hugged me in Singapore where the coronavirus was rampant. Now, right. Oh, Singapore no. is actually another place that they do this surveillance testing. Yes. And they've done a really good job of it. But I want yes. to make the point. Dave's with, a hugger. Yeah, Dave is a hugger and Richard is not. <laughs> it, it, not it not is as no much one. a hugger anymore. <laughs> not not anymore. Okay. More of an L bumper. So but I want to make this case that we know that the South Koreans have done extensive testing. Uh, 200,000 people, over, over 200,000 people, and they know right. that 8,236 of them have the virus. And they know how many people have died from this. We can't, we know in America how many people have died from this. So that number is not uh, at issue. The issue is how many people have the infection in America. Well, one of the things that we could do is we can take the Korean case fatality rate of uh, 0.91 and we can divide that into the total number of deaths in America and we can project the amount of people who probably have the virus in America, assuming that it travels Very at good. the same rate. Now, the, 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 the difference here is that they are using social isolation techniques, and they, but this is the minimum amount of people, I want to say, are infected in America. The minimum amount, I mean, the case fatality rate for America is, is uh, 1.8. That's like double the Korean case fatality rate. But I want to make the point that um, there are at least 7,577 people in America who've been infected, and my professor of immunology thinks it's more likely 10 times that. Yeah, oh, it's for so, sure. To, it's you know. for sure over mm. ten times that, in my opinion. I, I, okay. There's something else too. I actually dispute the uh, 0.91% case fatality rate. That's if you take the total number of cases, including the incoming cases against the total number of deaths that have happened in South Korea to date. The death occurs one to three weeks after the infection. So, um, Right. And so so it's in the, the amount of cases that – this is why I was waiting for South Korea, as they're kind of doing right now, sort of tapering off on the amount of incoming new cases because the rise in incoming cases depresses down – that appearance of what the case fatality rate is. Right. Because, of course, the incoming new cases are the immediate presentation of the symptoms, and your chances of presenting with symptoms are going to happen sooner than you will die from them, right. generally speaking. Right. So this is and this is why I think it's probably a number in between that and if you actually look at those cases with an outcome, which you know definitely doesn't look as good, that's about an eight percent. There's uh, roughly eight percent of those people that have either been discharged um, and uh, either been discharged or have been counted as recovered versus those that have died. Yeah. So I think it's north of 1%, but probably dropping. So yeah. when we were caught flat-footed, when South Korea was caught flat-footed, probably that percent, whatever that number is, was higher than 1%. I wouldn't be surprised if it's still above 1%, but it's in the process of dropping. So with that in mind, I do think if you're a country that's not doing what South Korea is doing, your case fatality rate, once you actually have a, de a decent caseload, is going to prove to be above 1%. Now, the, the actual fatality rate of actual infections, as opposed to 
cases because when we're talking about cases, we're talking people who were detected, which means yes. that they probably presented with symptoms. Mm-hmm. That nobody knows, but has everybody's kind of going off of what you just said, that it's probably a multiple of 10 at least yeah. of what's being detected and even diagnosed without having the tests available. So a lot of people throughout the United States, they're going, okay, we don't have a test for coronavirus, but by golly, we're feeling pretty confident that, you know, for example, they'll do the uh, the scans and find that the lungs are opaque and they'll go, yeah, yeah. This, is, yeah. this is probably, probably coronavirus, not. even though we can't do the blood test. Uh, that's, I, I think for us in the U S given how late we are to this game, I, I think it's going to be much bigger than a multiple of 10, much, much bigger. Yeah. I'm just trying to be realist. The good news is that, uh, more and more people are becoming, uh, immune to this by, uh, their own natural immunity. Uh, and, uh, very soon, if we can stretch this out for as long as we can, very soon, we're going to have a vaccine that's going to be able to confer immunity from, to people without having to become infected. They're I'm thinking more bearish it's than going you to are. take a year. Yeah, I'm more bearish than you are on that. I it, Believe me, I want for that to be true. But from what I've understood when I was looking into how vaccination uh, clinical trials go, it's it's understandable why they need to have like two and three stage trials because, of course, what you're what you're playing with really is very powerful. Yeah, you break uh, the immune system, you got problems. Exactly. And so there have been uh there have been vaccination trials that did not go well where the intervention arm uh died more. And obviously we we have to have that care. To have that get, that's why like building a vaccine and even 12 to, you know, 18 months is a, like a Herculean effort and would like set the record by the way for Hey, and if there's any time for us to set a record, it'd be like right about now. But that said, in 12 months, I mean, I'm not worried as much about the infection rate and the herd immunity if we had an unlimited healthcare system, mm. you know, resources availability. Yeah, yeah. we yeah, don't. That's and the so, critical thing. And and right. also in 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 the US, you don't have socialized uh, uh, medicine, so you you end up with people who can't afford to go to the doctor, walking around infecting people. So. So right. the rates here in the U.S. are going to be worse because you don't have socialized medicine. I, I don't think that's – okay, Italy has socialized medicine. How's that mm-hmm. – it, it doesn't It doesn't change resource availability. You yeah. can tell everybody in the U.S., if you've got coronavirus, go to the – or if you have any symptoms of coronavirus, go to the doctor. Nobody's going to charge them for that at this no. point. Here's, here's my issue. Um, I – I have, I had symptoms of, uh, you know, a cold, a common cold. I had a, a dry cough, which is one of the symptoms of COVID-19, right? And I had some stuffiness, never had a fever, but the prescription was isolate yourself for seven days. And I didn't go to a doctor. I didn't go to an ER. I didn't go to a, um, you know, a clinic because I felt that you know the the waiting room at the clinic first of all would be jammed and second of all is like ground zero so if i don't have it i probably would get it if i did have it i could end up infecting other people so so i just took you know the conventional wisdom advice which is isolate myself for 7 days now my symptoms have gone away and uh so that that's that's, I guess, the, the, the first line of defense, isn't it? 
most most ERs will actually put a mask on you as you walk through the door these days, and all the staff are, 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 are masked and changing gloves every half an hour. Mm. So, so mm. they so it's less of a. I I wouldn't want people to use. Oh, hospitals are full of bugs, to, uh, are, are infect- True. Uh, infectious agents to convince them not to go to a hospital if they're starting to experience respiratory distress. True, but there are stories out there of other problems of going to the ER. Can I read this story that um, one of you guys shared with us on Facebook? Sure. So this lady, and I will not say her name, but she says, all right, here's what's going on. I've been exhibiting all the symptoms of COVID-19 for over three days now. I called my primary this morning to talk to them about it. She asked me three basic questions, and my answer is raised in alarm. Unfortunately, her office is not equipped for testing, as are most doctor's offices. She strongly suggested I go to the ER to get tested. We go to the ER, and I'm greeted at the door by masked staff, just like you said, Richard. They ask me similar questions, I answer, and they hand me a mask and send me to get checked in. Then we wait. I'm seen fairly quickly for an ER trip, about half an hour. A nurse takes my blood pressure, a doctor sees me at the nurse's station and asks me more questions. Chest pains, labored breathing? Check. Fever? Check. Sore throat? Yup. Check again. Have you come in direct contact with somebody that has been diagnosed with COVID-19? Uh, how would I know? We've been in and out of casinos to go to restaurants, and we want, and we went to the movies on Sunday. Also, my husband works in a busy bar and comes into contact with tons of people. Well, since you haven't knowingly come into contact with somebody with the virus, we consider you a low risk and will not test you. <laughs> oh, no. But you need to observe self-quarantine protocol. Instead, they take a nasal flu swab and encourage me to get a chest x-ray. I decline because, hey, excuse me, I don't have health insurance. I wish I had declined the flu test, too. We wait. I get called back to do my paperwork for my visit, and I'm being charged $1,500 for my services. And that's just the hospital bill. I will be receiving a separate bill from the doctor, the doctor who stood and asked me questions for less than two minutes and left. Yeah. I, I almost have no words. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I kind of want to mention something real quick, by the way, on your prior story, Carl. If if I were to exhibit symptoms of coronavirus, I feel if it's mild that that's my cue to do exactly what you just said. Right. I'm going to self-quarantine. I Two things. One, if in fact I have it, I and I feel fairly confident that I'm going to go to, like, say, a hospital, you know, whether my insurance is covering it or not, I don't find any good reason for me to bring my own exposure to other people. Uh, and so I'm, if I think that I can wait it out just fine and I feel I have a healthy enough immune response, and for that matter, I'm not observing debilitating, I mean, certainly if it gets bad, right, then, right. then yeah, I want to go to the hospital. But right now, I'm acutely aware that. In the very near future, U.S. Uh, medical professionals across this nation are going to be really in difficult straits, and yep. I don't want to add my burden. And right. I really, and I really would hope other people could do the same. Now, I say this knowing that I am blessed to have the ability to work from home and to be isolated at home and so forth. So right. I may be in a different position if, for example, you know, I delivered goods. Or something along those lines where I didn't 
have as easily that option to make that choice. Uh, but all of that said, I do think you were making the right choice as far as being, as far as self-quarantine. It just makes the most sense to me. Yeah, I think so too. And, you know, it, it seems to have worked for me. Like my symptoms are gone after eight days now. Yeah, I know that doesn't mean anything. If I had it, I still could have it. Um, there and are if some. If you didn't have it, you still could get it. So that's true, right? And there are some uh, things that we we mentioned. This Dr. John Campbell guy on YouTube, who's just great. He's a a British doctor who's um, talking about you know probabilities and and graphs and charts and numbers, and he's just fantastic. Well, he said something that really resonated with me and something that we should probably repeat here, which is um, fever exists. You know, you get a fever for a reason. And that fever does cause inflammation, but that's acute inflammation. That is the purpose of which is to boost your immune system to fight the infection. And the worst thing he thinks that anyone could do. And he says, I'm not your doctor. I'm not giving you medical advice. But the last thing that I would do is take an anti-inflammatory, like an ibuprofen, like an Aleve, like, a, a, you know, naproxen. He says, I would take Tylenol. That's about it. But um, Tylenol, yeah, Tylenol in Australia is known as Panadol. And in, in Europe, mm. it's known as acetaminophen. Acetaminophen is the name of the drug, actually, yeah. So just a just something to remember. I'm I'm very strongly opinionated on this, and and I'm not going to miss the opportunity to, of course, plug Siobhan Huggins, who uh, has an entire presentation on inflammation that she did at uh, Salt Lake last year. It's it's up on YouTube. She also but, talked to us on Two Keto Dudes about it. Yes, it is. Mm. It is very much. I mean, it's often talked about like it's a problem. Like you want right. to you want to fight inflammation. And the truth of the matter is inflammation is, we would die without inflammation. Right. It's really a healing process. It can be very uh, taxing and frustrating to us. It can and be uncomfortable, things, right? Yeah. But, but the bottom line is it's a system that's built within us at both local and systemic levels to deal with a problem and to ultimately facilitate the process of healing. Now, that said, sure, there are things like autoimmune diseases and other things for which there, uh, there can be things that can go awry with it, right? But, but that said, a fever is a great example of something our bodies are super smart about. There's a certain amount of which cytokines, which are sort of signaling molecules for which the cells are calling for help, that bring around thresholds where eventually you're having the body say, you know what? We're going to close for operation and we're going to make this a very uncomfortable environment for these pathogens to do what they're doing. And so when the heat goes up, that's actually part of changing it, changing the ability of these uh, of the bad guys to do bad stuff to you. And the immune cells are already like they're already well equipped to work within this environment that you're creating for yourself. So what do you do? You take an outside chemical compound that's inhibiting your inflammatory process specifically, specifically directed to fight off something like an infection. Yes, it's a symptomatic treatment. This is uh, this is the same problem we have with treating uh, glucose by giving a high glucose by giving people insulin. You know, it's mm. it's uh, it's the same problem again. One of the 
problems spe- specifically to ibuprofen and also to ACE inhibitors used for um, uh, treating hypertension is that uh, the specific mechanism by which the coronavirus invades our cells is ACE2, um, angiotensin 2 um, converting enzyme on the uh, on the surface of the uh, of our cells. And the coronavirus binds to that, and that's how it gets into our cells. Well, the more of those uh, you have on the outside that you adorn the outside of your cells with, the more chances the coronavirus is going to get in. And uh, ibuprofen specifically, uh, but also uh, ACE, ACE inhibitors, ACE inhibitors actually cause your cell to make more ACE2 <laughs> Uh, receptors so you know it's so it's, it's one of these things that the cell the cells aren't idiots and so and that may be why there's an association between hypertension and uh and fatalities because a lot of people who are hypertensive uh, are dying from from uh, coronavirus are they taking ace inhibitors i mean that's 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 quite quite possible so uh, so I, I i would just out of an abundance of caution, I wouldn't take ibuprofen no matter what, but I I might consider aspirin or or, or Panadol. You know. Point is, I I just really think that it's it's unfortunate that we've gotten so used to vilifying the inflammatory process mm-hmm. when inflammation may be exactly what many people need. And again, you know, this isn't medical advice. Consult sure. your doctor, etc. But do, do I put a lot of faith in the uh, process of inflammation? Certainly, as I've gotten into this research, I've gotten more and more appreciative. Uh, and a lot of it was, it, I would say, lipoproteins were the gateway drug to that because, as it turns out, uh, they're an acute phase reactant. And acute phase reactants, they're proteins that rise in you know, the, the circumstances of an inflammatory response. And yeah, when you, found, when you find all of these amazing like mechanistic things your body does to have these these constant wars going on that you're usually not even aware of that are happening Mm -hmm. within your body all the time. It's really quite amazing. So now just about anything that can happen for which there's an inflammatory response that I'm experiencing, whether it be a physical injury or whether it be a sickness, I want to allow it. It, it, that's my default mode and that right. I, I, I would hope other people would consider in this, in this uh, particular situation. And, and again, this is acute inflammation in response to a threat, not chronic inflammation, which is, you know, has its own problems and is, you know, one of the complications of diabetes and all that. Right. Of course. But let's, let's emphasize something important. Chronic inflammation should already be a signal to you that there's a chronic root cause that's the likelihood of it. It's not always the case, but it likely is that there's a chronic root cause that creates the chronic inflammation. This is why just tests for inflammation in general should be uh, really paid attention to because it can say, hey, there's a problem. You may want to do some deeper investigation. Uh, the other thing that I want to bring up with you guys is blood sugar. Now, one thing I know is when people are – when they have an infection, a viral infection or a bacterial infection – um, the insulin tends to not work so well, right? And so it, it's it's probably a uh, you're probably going to notice that your blood sugar might be a little higher than normal. Is that a good observation? So there's two things involved here. In there's the there's the the, the pathogen, the virus, and then there's the, the the disease, which is how the virus affects the body. Mm-hmm. And the virus doesn't care about glucose. 
if it was a bacterial infection, yeah, that would make a difference. But the virus doesn't care about glucose. It just cares about getting into the cell, sticking its RNA into the cell, co-opting our machinery to reproduce lots of versions of the virus and explode the cell with uh, releasing lots more viruses in, in the body. That's, that's its sole, sole goal. So in as much as you can uh, damage the uh, ability of the cell to resist invaders, or damage the you know by 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 you know uh, running high glucose, for example, um, uh, you you not only affect the ability of the cell to protect itself, but you also affect all of the secondary infections that are, that are involved. So you know all of the opportunistic bacterial infections that happen in the lungs. After the virus has, has compromised everything, that's probably what's killing people. So you know you certainly don't want to be uh, running your glu- uh, running glucose at a, at a high level. And and you know if you look at the the statistics of those comorbidities that cause fatalities, you're talking about heart disease, you're talking about cardio, uh, you're talking about um, hypertension, which is you know part of the same picture. You're also talking about diabetes. I mean diabetics have a a greater uh, risk. Plus, you're also talking about age as a, as a confound as well. I mean, the older you are, the 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 the, the more fatal, more more chance, higher chances are of, of of this being a fatal incident for you. Sure. So you know that that um uh so and, and the older you yeah, are, yeah, I'm, the, I'm the fully aware of the risks so, of high blood sugar. But my question was in particular about how does a, a viral infection, in particular this one, how would it affect would it affect your blood sugar? And how? I have no idea. I I think that um, of course there's you because you also mentioned insulin. You you may be aware that you can have insulin resistance uh, in in response to a an inflammatory response for which its yes. its intent is to actually have a greater amount of insulin in play, right? And this is why I think actually part of how we can create some degree of chronic disease, and I haven't really expanded on this too much, but I've believed for some time that you can outcompete your immune response because you can actually bring your insulin above where it would homeostatically keep it uh, for managing that kind of a response. But that's that's kind of a bit of a of a broader theory. But the concept being is that there's a good reason, I think, for you to have a lower basal insulin level and to try not to spike as much. And that's why I think a lot of people lose their appetite when they're particularly sick right. is because that's part of this overall process of, hey, let's actually allow for whatever amount your uh, immune system wants to keep insulin levels to accomplish these goals to succeed. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's also why weight loss is part of the, the decline of the uh, of the of the, the pathology because, you know, the, the as insulin goes low, people live on their reserves. That's why people mm. who have a little bit more reserves going to have a better chance. People who are extremely slim uh, have uh, fewer reserves and, you know, they're, they're really uh, up against the wall. So, so the, that brings me to the next obvious question, which is, should I fast if I think I have this virus or if I know I do? I don't think there's evidence one way or another on that. I know there's certainly public commentary by people saying that fasting boosts your immune um, system. So, mm. you know. That- is it the fasting or is it the beta-hydroxybutyrate? Because we just recently saw a study, didn't we, Richard, where um, increased levels of, of beta-hydroxybutyrate improve the immune Me- system. 
Nina mentioned this at uh, at low carb Denver uh, during her presentation. Yeah, the, there's a mouse study showing that uh, mice that are on ketogenic, high fat ketogenic diets, uh, but not mice fed regular diets and given one um, three uh, butanediol as a as an exogenous ketone. So these are these are mice that are making making ketones as a side effect of the fact that they're running on fat. Um, and running efficiently on fat, they produce a greater, they produce a more expanded uh, gamma delta T cell um, response. And um, I was looking for some studies. So, so the first thing I would say about that is it's a mice study. It's probably you know that mice are not men, and so you know may not be able to translate it. Sure, yeah, there are conflicting mouse studies too. It well, it's hypothesis generating. If you see something in a mouse, go and have a look at it in a man. You know, see if it, see if the same thing happens. Sure. So I know for that, I saw found one study that showed that uh, gamma two delta nine variant of the T cell is is has a role in immunosurveillance against SARS, which is a cousin of coronavirus. So if you're going to have more of those gamma gamma delta cells, gamma gamma delta T cells, and you're going to have you know more of the uh, the gamma two delta nine T cells, then you're going to have better immunosurveillance, and so you're going to pick up this bugger quicker. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that we have a, a unique opportunity here. This is a novel virus for which there is no herd immunity, so we actually can watch this virus go into a a totally naive population and move through the population. Now, if you were, for example, Verta Health and you were doing a controlled trial of ketogenic diets against standard of care for type 2 diabetics who are highly, um, uh, they're certainly more exposed to this particular um, uh, horrible outcomes, uh, then you could actually look at something like symptom duration as a proxy for immune response. And you could actually mm. say, we have two populations, they all live in the same town. Unfortunately, SARS has come through here, but we know that those who are on the ketogenic treatment who then came down with COVID-19 disease, we can then statistically look at the difference between them and the controls for the duration of the symptoms. And that actually, that's how you do that particular study. And there's only a very short time in order to uh, do that, because once we uh, develop herd immunity, this will have a, a massive big confound. But this is a way to do an unconfounded um, study in this t- kind of thing. For what it's worth, I I think you guys already know I really don't like multi-day fasting. Uh, but I would try my damnedest if I had it. For me personally, I would probably try to do multi-day fasting. And I, I can think of just a list of reasons off the top of my head that there may not even be specific studies for, but for which just logistically it makes sense. Yeah. Starting starting with the first and most obvious, I mean, from an engineering standpoint, why would I not want to wall off my garden? And yeah. if I already know I have existing energy reserves, and if I know my body has better management of those energy, of the energy reserves internally with uh, less overall external influence. I mean, take, for example, not just how much the engagement of my GI tract from eating uh, involves uh, disrupting the endocrine system, which is already engaged right now in the managing yeah. management of the battle. But on top of that, I mean, even if it's a, you know, an excellent ketogenic diet, there's some, for example, endotoxins that I'm going to be bringing in, which also requires some, I mean, these are just standard things that come with just eating. You're going, you're going to have some immune response 
constantly in just dealing with the food you bring in, no matter what that food is, right? Uh, and yeah, on top of that, I don't, I, I don't, I have to be careful because I don't want to make it sound like I feel certain that this is super relevant, but I do know, uh, certainly not just from research that I've done, but also Siobhan as well, that the higher levels of lipoproteins could be very relevant, could be relevant. Could it be. Maybe it could be, it may be, uh, you know, it may turn out to be a bad thing. We don't know until we've actually got strong data behind it, but of the data that I've seen thus far as part of the components of the battle, I know I could get more in play for that purpose. Now, again, I, you know, all of these things are speculative, but that said, I mean, between all of these different aspects, I, I think it's a pretty strong bet that if I could fast, it'd be good. The one catch is as always, and I think this is something that I've had to learn and it took me years to learn. It's probably the thing I've been the slowest to learn is getting enough salt. I've got to get, get enough, enough salt. salt, whether I'm on a ketogenic diet or whether I'm fasting, but particularly the lower carb I am, uh, the, the less I'm retaining water and so forth, the more I've got to be mindful of getting enough uh, salt because it's just the trunk of the tree for the electrolytes. Potassium as well. Yeah, I think I get, I mean, me personally, I think I get enough potassium and magnesium. Those are the two that I was playing with all the time before I finally came to the conclusion I just need a lot more salt. Because what I think was going on was my yeah. body was ditching. Um, as you find out with the biochemistry, you'll start ditching your other electrolytes before it ditches sodium. It'll do mm. everything in its power to try to hold on to sodium. And so I, I don't, and actually interesting uh, chloride as well. I should just, a little funny interjection. One of my last blood tests came up where I was low on both sodium and chloride. Hmm. And well, you guys know me. Fix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys know me. I'm not shy about the salt, right? Yeah. And, and th those electrolyte ranges, I mean, even when you're somewhat depleted, it takes a lot to get outside of those ranges. But I, d I digress. I just, I just want to say that to your question, Carl, I speculate that fasting is a smart move if you can pull it off uh, when you got this. That's what that's why I speculate. I'd add one addendum there. Um, uh, you you don't want to add caloric restriction into the mix. Right. So if you can fast, it'll be contingent about on on how much body fat you have, and it may well be that a fat fast will get you just as much bang for the buck. As I know, I know there's the potential of lipopolysaccharide um, uh, contamination in any foods, but yes, I think that a a uh, I think that supplement if you are slim, you either you eat lean, or you don't eat. Is what you're saying? No, no, I'm saying if you if you if you plan to fast for multiple days and you're lean, you may need to eat a little bit of fat. Oh. That's all I'm saying. True. Okay. Right. Have some butter. Well, I, I look at it as, you know, okay, if I have to, you know, if the supermarkets are shut down and there's nobody doing food delivery and I can't leave the house, that's actually a good option. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe even before that happens. Um, is there anything else we want to talk about? Vitamin D, perhaps? So um, vitamin D is interesting. Uh, it certainly has a role in the, your immune function, but it also, unfortunately, it also there's also evidence that it increases ACE2, which is the angiotensin II uh, converter uh, receptor. So um, yeah, it, vitamin D could potentially just for this virus only be worse, and we don't know. We don't have evidence. Really? It, yes. So so my advice is 
uh, I, I, or at least what I'm been, I've been doing is I take some vitamin C, uh, extra antioxidant uh, defense is not going to be a bad thing, um, and I take a little bit of zinc. And um, the, the, the Chinese have, uh, they've tried just about everything that they had in their arsenal, um, and one of the things that helped reduce the cytokine storm that, that is involved with things going downhill very quickly is um, uh, vitamin C. So, um, yeah, that, okay. that, that is one treatment, yeah. I myself, I'm actually skeptical of the supplementation of vitamins when we don't know for sure if there wasn't already an inadequate amount in the host in the first place. Totally agree. Well, yeah, I, I yeah, think, yeah. you know, I'm only going to take a supplement if I'm deficient in that nutrient and there isn't any better way to get it. The good thing about vitamin C is it's water-soluble. So right. there's a mechanism for dealing with too much of it. Yep, urination. You know, I got to add one more thing to that. Uh, there is, as somebody who experiments a lot, gets a preposterous amount of blood tests, I thought that about B12 uh, because B12 is water soluble. It, mm-hmm. I should be excreting it out just fine, right? And alas, uh, there was something my sister got me hooked on called um, ZipFizz. You guys might be familiar with it. No. And it has a ridiculous amount of vitamin B12. I want to say it's something like 40,000% RDA. Is and it so, like a soda for vegans? Is that what it is? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's vegan, but it, it, it basically made a nice fizzy drink. Okay. And so I would have like one of them a day. I didn't even have more than one. And just for the heck of it, I uh, was testing vitamin B12 before and I had normal levels. And I started just testing it while drinking this. And basically did kind of a crossover over, I want to say, four or five tests where I had it, I'd, I maxed out my B12. And I went, oh, I'd better get off that. I got off it. I was back to normal levels again. I said, well, maybe it wasn't that. So I went to half of the half of that drink a day. And yeah. even in half the drink a day, boom, I maxed out my B12 again. So where it's, you know, beyond its measurable levels. So yeah. I don't. I'm not I'm not 100% sure on the water soluble thing but then again I'm that guy who takes so many freaking blood tests that I can see so you're likely to see something that other people are missing because right. you take so and many it, tests. Right. Hmm. And so I so like in the case of vitamins I mean particularly given a lot of the things I've learned okay vitamin D is a good example. For sure, if you're deficient in vitamin D, I don't care if you're sick or not. You need to Take get some. on that. Yep, yep. Vit- yeah. Vitamin D is uh, directly relevant to the transcription inside your cells. <laughs> like it's it's extremely important that you have enough vitamin D. But once you reach the level of vitamin D, does an excess amount of vitamin D right. uh, help in particular? I'm skeptical of that because once again, I think it comes down to uh, are the tests – testing something where oh you've now met um sufficiency whereas the uh, control arm is deficient in it yeah. all all uh, the st- from all of the studies that i could see that show effect of vitamin c um where they knew the the pro- the previous um state of the of the of the subject so they knew how much vitamin c they had coming in they gave them vitamin c and then they looked for an effect most of the effects or the, the significant effects were in those who were had not enough to start off with and then and then got enough those who already had plenty and then got more didn't show the significant effect so the the effect seems to be uh, not being insufficient and that's uh, and and that's always my attitude with uh, 
with uh, supplementation. In the case of in, in the case of vitamin D, I, I, I have that caveat. Um, I'm I'm not going out of my way to 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 increase my D just during this. But you're uh, not process. deficient, are you? Uh, I haven't. We'll see. Here you go, Dave. I haven't tested for a long time. Ah. It's been a good six months since I tested, so I don't know. It is the middle of summer in Australia, so that and I I spend a lot of time walking around in shorts, shorts and and t shirt. So uh, there's a very good chance I've made plenty of the stuff, and so I don't need it. Mm. Well, only if you have sufficient cholesterol. Well, I do. I I'm a, I I am I'm a I'm a hyper producer of cholesterol, as is all my family, and we're totally normal because of it. One thing I would mention that might be interesting is that I, so I, you probably can tell I've got a, a blocked nose right now. It's got nothing to do with coronavirus. It's the seasonal allergies and it's, it's March in Denver right now and all of the plants are, and it's, it's been warm the whole time I've been here and all of the plants are budding and, you know, mm. the seasonal allergies, uh, cause people to sneeze a lot and that is going to exacerbate. That's going to produce a greater spread. Uh, than we saw during the winter months uh, sure. for China and for Korea. So, and in the case of Australia, we're just now. Literally, the day that I left for Denver was the day that uh, the the seasonal uh, vaccine, seasonal flu vaccine, was available. So I didn't get my flu vaccine um, down there. Uh, I will be getting it when I get back. And uh, one of the things is you don't want to have you don't want to have uh, an infection. You don't want to have COVID nineteen. And influenza at the same time. You don't want to have influenza. Um, uh, you don't want to have any any lung, any any concerns with uh, lung disease uh, and have COVID nineteen. Um, but you don't uh, also want to have people coughing and sneezing with influenza um, in an environment where everybody's worrying about COVID nineteen. So uh, anyway, sure. it's it, the, the seasonal flu is is going to have an effect, and I believe seasonal allergies will also have an effect on transmission. Well, guys, it certainly feels like we're coming to the end of our conversation. I could just talk to you guys forever. You know that. But it's about an hour and 20 minutes. Is there any last minute things that you want to call out? I just want to say that people shouldn't panic. Uh, this is not a cause for panic. This is a cause for action. Um, there are things that we can do to flatten the curve, to slow the spread, uh, to 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 prevent transmission to people who are, may have a worse outcome than you. And look, if you're in your 20s or your 30s and you're looking at the, the mortality statistics and saying, hey, I got no problem, I don't care about uh, coronavirus, then stop being a sociopath. Don't give it to your grandparents. Don't pass it to other people. You know, Take the same precautions. Wash your hands. Cover your cough. Give people L bumps instead of shaking their hands and, and, and we'll all get through this. So that's that's what I. It's not really optimistic. I wanted to be op optimistic because I don't think we should be panicking and upset about all this. I think we should be uh, looking at looking at this as an opportunity for action. I I don't think we should be panicking uh, as well. That said, I I do think we should recognize that a lot of uh, to put it delicately, we're going to have wave after wave of bad news. There's going to be some very significant changes, many of which we couldn't possibly be predicting, many of which um, people couldn't uh, have thought that they would ever be talking about in the future. So I will say this. I, I, do, I do want people to be um, aware that we've got a long history as a species of coming into some very big things and coming out the other side stronger. And I think this will be yet one more chapter in the story. 
And that, that to me is something that, you know, I, I have a, uh, I have a trick that I do whenever I've got to get some serious dental work, which I haven't had to since going on keto, which I'm pretty happy about. But if I did, if I did have to get something pretty serious, I would try to, I would try to actually move my mind ahead into the future after it had happened. Wow. So, you know, if I'm dealing with a root canal or whatever, I'm like, ah, oh, this, there's, and the more I just anticipate the root canal, the more anxious I'm going to get. And I think it helps to keep things in perspective to recognize that our story has had many bumps along the way. And at the end of the day, we tend to still end up somewhere even better than where we came from. But unfortunately, the bumps are part of the human experience, including our experience as a society. Thank you, guys. It's been great to catch up with you. And I, and I hope what we've said here today will, will help. Cool. Thanks, Carl. All right. Talk to you later.